Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, doctors, healers, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given to you by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Melissa Gutman. Melissa is an IFS and music therapist who helps highly sensitive empaths raised by narcissists ungaslight themselves and trust their emotions and intuition. So Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much. I heard that and I was like, damn straight. That is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, just so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Do you mind giving just a little bit of background about who you are and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. So, um, I am a psychotherapist. I was trained as a music therapist at the graduate level, working with singers with perfectionism and performance anxiety. And that actually got me a little bit deeper into narcissistic abuse in this indirect way around like what happens when someone grows up and they feel like they have to perform for their worth and don't really know who they are. And, uh, and this sense of emotional neglect that came from, from narcissistic wounding could be seen in some of the performers I worked with. And then um, when I went into private practice and became licensed, I also got trained simultaneously in IFS. And I got to learn this other dimension of uh, internal family systems, this, this therapy model around like, how do we protect ourselves? And um, what are our true gifts? And, and started bringing that in with my music therapy. And then also with clients who were coming to me um, having been raised in dysfunctional families. And so I do a mix of the two, some music therapy with vocalists and performers and some childhood trauma therapy using IFS with people who've been raised by narcissists. Wow. I would think that in the, um, I guess the performance arena where people are singers and performers and things of that nature, there would be a lot of, um, perfectionism that you may see because people want to do things oh so perfect. Yeah, it's the chicken or the egg thing. You know, you could argue that the career itself lends itself to that, right? It's like success, competition, achievement, visibility, shining, beauty, some of the superficiality in that, right? But what leads someone to want that kind of career sometimes is also based in what they were baked in as a child and kind of like learning to adapt to other people's external expectations of them, not knowing the self, performing a self. Um, and so there can be an interesting overlap between people who choose careers like that. But obviously, of course, it's a soul-led, talent-led, gift-led career too. In IFS, we talk about choosing from our gifts versus our burdens. So I always like to say it can still be a beautiful destiny and a calling. It's separate from trauma, but it's up to everyone to decide how much of their trauma was a factor in either choosing it or how it's impacting the way they're being in that career, whether or not it's also a gift and a calling. Wow. That yeah. is pretty deep, especially the, the chicken <laughs> and the egg um, analogy, yeah. because, you know, I guess to think that maybe some people want to do that because of um, external things that may drive them for perfectionism, that, that was something I never thought about. So wow, that is pretty deep. It's a both and because singing is so spiritual and art is innate. 
and children are creative. So like there's, there's this healthy way of being in all of that. And so I always want to just hold the duality, which is so important with therapy. It's like learning to think both and the beauty and the pain, the gifts and the trauma, the purpose and the history shaping the way we approach purpose. Duality is such a strong word for me because I remember the first time I heard it in therapy and it was, you know, two things can coexist at once. And it seems really simple, but when it actually hits you on a deep level, you, you, you understand the profoundness of it. Yeah. And that's an interesting segue too, into the narcissistic stuff, right? Because one of the things we learn dialectical behavior therapy is two things can be true at the same time. And the more psychologically integrated and healthy someone becomes over time, the more nuance they can hold and complexity. And so it's like, I love you, but that caused me pain or I'm inherently a good person, but I had a behavior that harmed you or whatever. Like the ability to say like both and, right? Dark and light, healthy and unhealthy, and it's okay. And when you are raised by someone with narcissism, there's a lot of black and white thinking like and hierarchical thinking like I'm better, I'm right, you're wrong, there's something wrong with you, um, or just the inability to hold uh, emotional complexity. It's more like emotional reactivity, like I'm angry and therefore you hurt me and there's something wrong with you versus like seeing, truly seeing your child, right? And like loving them and holding them in their imperfection and their developmental process and understanding they might've had good intentions. So not assigning motivations that are negative because you feel negatively. So that's part of the both and. Wow. That was so deep. Good Lord. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I'm diving right into the deep end. No, of the no, you're good. Good. <laughs> do what you do. Yeah. This is um, how I think. But to get started, to dive in, um, I wanted to start with a few questions. And the first was, um, since you help people who are, are sensitive empaths, what is an empath or, or a sensitive person? Yeah. So my favorite people in the world, right? I am one of them. It's probably why. Um, 20% of all humans in our population have this trait of high sensitivity that evolved to help us be more responsive to our environment. It's a survival strategy, right? Noticing cues in the environment. Am I safe? Am I not safe? And also processing emotions on a more deep level. So positive and negative. Um, that can lead to overstimulation, right? And sensory difficulties like, ah, the lights are too bright. The clothes are too rough against my skin. Um, can't stay out at the club all night. I mean, you can if you if you um, drink probably, but <laughs> you know, unless you're numbing out on some level, there can be this, this degree of overwhelm, um, wanting to retreat and withdraw possibly. But then all these beautiful qualities, right? We're talking about the both and, intuitive, sensitive, perceptive, creative. Um, loves art, music, nature, people, often the highly sensitive person, empathic person becomes like the natural therapist and emotional caretaker of their friends. Uh, so, uh, and empaths really just are highly sensitive people who feel other people's emotions in their body. So not just like aware of what other people are thinking and feeling empathic towards them, but also feeling like, oh, like I'm carrying that, you know, and it can be really crazy making if you are a highly sensitive empath who's a child of a narcissist, because not only are you feeling all of your own deep emotions, but you're feeling theirs and not even realizing it. And if narcissists don't validate you, you then actually feel crazy because you're like, I'm, I'm, I don't even know why I feel this much, or I don't even 
have mirroring to reflect the way I'm feeling. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot. I felt a lot of that too. <laughs> um, okay. So since you work with these type of individuals who are raised by narcissistic parents, what does being raised by a narcissist look like or, or how can that look? Yeah. So I will say that when it's happening, you don't know it all the time. There's some, all right, there's like overt narcissism where it's like grandiosity, like I am the best person in the room and you must listen to me. Even then as a kid, you might be like, wow, this person's really charming and intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) And it's only later when you're like, "Hmm, I never got to have my own thoughts or feelings or my opinions were always invalidated or I don't trust myself all that much. Um, And then there's a more covert, passive aggressive kind of narcissism, which is like death by a thousand cuts, I like to say. So it's like your parent loves you, but then occasionally they just like randomly put you down, but then say it was a joke. (laughs) Or it's like you end up feeling more guilty. Uh, There's some really cool thing called fog, fear, obligation, guilt. So it's like a parent's like, I love you so much. But then like a lot of it's really still about them. Like, oh, you're not coming to this holiday. And I feel so betrayed and like, you don't really love me. And then you're like, oh God, I have to, you know, so this idea of like parenting is supposed to be like the parent mirrors the child and empowers the child in their own autonomy. And narcissistic parenting is inverse. It's parentification. It's like, you will cater to me. My feelings are the ones that you should be worried about. Even if I'm saying I love you. And of course, in everyone's heart, I believe our hearts and souls truly love each other, but the personality parts, the defenses. Are, are manipulating in a manner to make the child revolve around the parent, kind of like the planets revolve around the sun. And it's the opposite of how it should be developmentally, which is why children often don't know they were raised in that way until later in life when they're like, I doubt myself. I have low self-esteem. I don't feel important. I don't set boundaries. I'm codependently caretaking for people around me. I don't know who I am. So it's almost like neglect shows up in an internal experience of emptiness and internal loneliness and self-doubt. And then usually attachment issues with others. There's often a pattern of like, why do I keep dating the same person? Or why are all my friends kind of self-absorbed? Or like, (laughs) why don't I feel important, right? And then those are sort of these lingering symptoms that can start to be indicators or clues that, hey, maybe I was parented in this way. Uh, I I don't know if I've ever heard it explained so clearly and concise to where mm-hmm. like just spot on one after the other that was a, a great explanation thank you for that. Oh, thank you um okay so i wanted to ask another question how do you define gaslighting and how do you help your clients ungaslight themselves well i recently just came up with a new term called the gaslighting gravitron remember the gravitron um yeah at the amusement park. like the fair and whatnot, right? <laughs> Hell yeah. You know how it like spins and it kind of pins you to the outside of it and then you get dizzy and you're like, I don't know where mm-hmm. the hell I am. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and it's kind of like a wild ride. That's what it can feel like to be gaslit on the inside. It's like, I don't know my orientation in space. I don't know up from down, left from right. I don't know reality anymore because someone told me something about myself that wasn't true with so much authority and confidence this person I love that I trust that knows me deeply is assigning this other thing to me. I've let them in and my tendency is to believe them over myself. And then I lose myself and it's terrifying. 
And it also comes with shame because it's usually, it's a blame shifting. It's the way the narcissist takes attention off of their own wounding and their own behaviors. It's like, you did it, or it's because you are blank. And then you're like, wait one second, am I a bad person? Which is why a lot of children and narcissists, ironically, grow up thinking they might be the narcissist. But here's the positive thing we therapists like to say is like, if you have been spending a lot of time Googling, researching whether or not you're a narcissist, you're definitely not that narcissistic because most narcissistic people don't have the self-reflection or the willingness to even take accountability. So sometimes we have like a narcissistic trait or two, like something that we're working on because of how we were raised and that's totally fine. But um, there's, there's definitely a spectrum and a level of degree to where someone is, if someone's more narcissistic, typically they don't, um, they don't feel the level of remorse and self-reflection that would have them even own up to it. I see. And then, um, okay. So how do you help your, your clients ungaslight themselves? So to ungaslight yourself is to, I think one of the healthy natural reactions, interestingly, that we have to move through that sometimes gets pathologized is anger. So the flip side of shame is often anger. It's like, I'm so bad. I did something wrong. Instead, anger of like, oh, my boundary, my psychological, emotional boundary was violated just now to the point where I feel destabilized and like, I don't know myself and someone I loved and trusted did that to me. They abused me. Anger is a natural, healthy reaction to assert your own boundary, take space and say, no, I do not accept that interpretation of your reality. Um, it's it's a healthy response to violation. So like tapping back into your own authentic anger as a start is really good. Just to, just to separate from the projection. And, um, and there is a part of you that might want to, and we talk about internal family systems, you know, I know that you've been in that process as well as I have been. Um, we have protector parts that kind of, um, jump in as defense mechanisms in our lives. So we might have a part that wants to dissociate an ally with the narcissist or the abuser, like, or have empathy for them. And it's a protector. It looks like love, but it's really you being like, if I agree with this person, we can still stay close and connected because it's heartbreaking to lose an attachment to someone you thought was safe. Right? So the first instinct might to be to agree with them, which will further make you feel sick and crazy because you're going to keep losing your own reality. But like that might be a reaction. So I like to spot that in clients and say like the antidote to that is grief. It's like, it's hard to let go of trying to align your vision and reality with someone who's abusing you because then you have to accept that that relationship might not be healthy and you might need some distance from it, at least serious boundaries, right? Like you might only see them on a holiday or talk to them about lighter topics or whatever. Um, so I would say like on gaslighting is yes, some space, some anger, and then compassion for yourself because shame is really corrosive. As Brene Brown says, it's highly correlated with addiction and depression and anxiety. It's like guilt is I did a bad thing. Shame is I am bad. And so when someone gaslights you, there's usually the implication that you are bad. So you want to be really cautious that you're not internalizing that as a new reality and belief about yourself. So you talk to people about your story. You talk to safe people specifically, um, a therapist you trust, a friend you trust, someone who's never emotionally harmed you and get their view on you to help you remember who you are, which is like, I know you're a loving person. Wow. That sounds like a difficult situation. Compassion is the antidote to shame. And like Brene Brown says, it can't survive. Shame can't survive compassion. So wow. 
yeah, that's that's what I would recommend. You have me taking notes over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have the recording to watch back too. <laughs> um, that was that was powerful because, mm-hmm. I mean, gaslighting is such a you know a hot word right now, mm-hmm. and I don't know if the correct definition is um, highlighted enough because you know someone could feel like you're doing something and then just say, Oh, you're gaslighting me. And it may not be gaslighting, but to hear it the way you just described it was, was blew the top off of it. So Mm -hmm. thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, Okay. So something that we've discussed and that you just mentioned as well is emotional neglect or emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of us who are just getting into you know, learning what mental health is and how it feels to be healthy emotionally, we may not truly understand exactly what emotional neglect is. So mm-hmm. um, is emotional neglect, okay, so we know physical abuse, yeah. but emotional abuse may not, we may not look at that as the same way. I just saw a um, a series on Netflix, um, this one was it? Um, I forget the name of it, but the, the girl was in an emotional relationship or, uh, emotionally abusive relationship and she started cleaning, um, a house for her, not a friend, but they were in Washington state. I think it was called the cleaning lady or something like that. I don't know. Really? Anyway, at the end of it, they basically defined emotional abuse as abuse. Like there's no difference. Right. So oh, yeah. I, I, what I wanted to ask is how do you define emotional abuse and what are some of the effects of it? Oh yeah. So emotional abuse is doing harm to the psyche of another human being. So often we think like if someone punches me, (laughs) therefore I'm being abused. Right. But it's like someone's literally punching your mind. Right. So it's like, if someone's saying to you, you're worthless, calling you names, threatening you, telling you you're crazy. And you get to the point where you feel crazy, like you can't trust yourself and you have low self-worth to the point that you like question your value in the world. And in some severe cases want to even die. That's harm. You're doing emotional abuse to somebody. So that, that is something that comes up with narcissism quite a bit. Um, because it's one of their weapons. And because it's invisible, it's even more insidious because there's never going to be a mark left on the body. But you can tell by the person who like lives their entire life, like a lot of times they end up becoming substance abusers to numb out because they don't feel an internal sense of connection to their true self or their higher self or to, it, it actually erodes your spiritual connection as well too. Because if you feel worthless, you don't feel like a being equal to others. And so it actually prevents sometimes that sense of spiritual connection to all that there is because unconditional love is the path to that. And so if the very person who raised you um, didn't make you feel unconditionally loved, there will be an inability sometimes, depends on how you were raised, to still access that divine compassion and forgiveness for yourself so that you have a healthy basis of self-esteem to pursue certain goals and have confidence in your visions. And to have a stable basis of self in which to relate intimately to others in romantic relationships and in friendships. 
And a lot of times we'll even choose healers unconsciously that will continue to exploit you. Wow. Your um, definitions are so good. My goodness. Mm. I, they, I feel them on a, a deep level because I think they're not just like, you know, open the dictionary and it gives you a, you know, two or three lines about what it is, but you, it, you can tell that you have been doing this work for a while because your explanations are, are so intimate. Um, and they're on a deep level that like, you can feel what you're saying emotionally if you've ever experienced that, or if you know someone who's experienced it. So I am so grateful for the way that you explain these things. Thank you. Really, mm -hmm. really glad to be received. Appreciate that. Okay, so I saw one of your posts that said, um, to grow up sensitive in a dysfunctional family is to be chronically neglected. Oof. So I have a two-part question on this one. Right? Yeah. yeah oof. <laughs> um, a lot of people think that they had a normal uh, life or home life. Um, what are some signs of dysfunction of a dysfunctional family that may seem normal? Hmm. You know, especially because I specialize in emotional neglect, I would say one of the things that's really common is a parent who overly confides in their kid. So like, suppose the parents are having trouble um, with each other and then they don't have a, an emotional confidant in each other. And there's like this hierarchical boundary, right? Where it's like, if, if okay, so if parents are spouses and equals and they're adults, right? Ideally, adult content should not be directed to the child, the developing child's mind. First of all, it's overwhelming for them. They start feeling responsible for the parents, worried that they're the cause of the, the issues or they're supposed to fix or save the parents on some level. But also sometimes it's developmentally inappropriate. Maybe there's like sexual content, like maybe they're learning about an affair or maybe they're learning about like, you know, money issues or just stuff where it's like, whoa, like this wasn't supposed to be entered into their biosphere at this point in their life. So that's very common, like parents overly sharing with children and children not realizing it's neglect because in that moment, there is an exchange of emotional data. There is a relationship. There is a bond, but it's a bond that exploits the caregiving of the child who's not developmentally able to be providing that caregiving. And it neglects the child's need in that moment, which is to be seen and protected. Um, I really recommend there's a book called mother hunger and it's super great. And, and she talks about three different levels of neglect. One is a lack of protection. So suppose there's um, an active addict or abuser in the home and the other parent or what looks the other way, doesn't actually step in and say, this is unacceptable, I'm leaving you, or you need treatment or like model healthy boundaries um, and protection of the child and instead like turns a blind eye or just is defenseless or helpless against it. That is a form of emotional neglect and also physical neglect. And um a lack of guidance, you know, um, and so, and I, and I also want to say, because even though I specialize in narcissistic parents, there are all, all sorts of parents who just neglect because unfortunately they have three jobs and they have to put food on the table. Like loving people <laughs> a lot of times, unfortunately harm their children just because the system isn't set up to support them to, to be their best, right? They don't have the resources or the community to provide additional functioning and for a single parent and all these things. So I'd also want to like add like, I'm not just describing things that happen in narcissistic families. I'm just describing life. But um, there is a piece to that too, where it's like um, not being able to provide guidance, like help with homework or 
oh, this is what happens. I've, I've worked with people who like when they got their period, didn't like have support around that, like, um, young developing women, um, or weren't taught how to drive or just like certain things where it's like, how am I supposed to function and thrive and leave the nest, you know? So a lack of guidance and uh, a lack of nurturance, which is like emotional support. So if they're sick or they're sad, just like, oh, buck up or, you know, you'll be okay. Or like a pat answer, superficial support, but it doesn't really feel to the child that they're being seen, heard and known. And it's especially insidious for highly sensitive and empathic children because they feel so deeply. So it's like, um, I think this impacts any kind of child, but especially if you're someone who tends to vibe deep and you need a deep vibe, <laughs> it can be really hard to just be told like, you'll be okay. Instead of being met first in the pain, because the parent often, even really well-meaning parents who just uh, didn't have this sort of support when they were growing up, didn't have the tools to emotionally be with their own pain. So it's hard for them to then be in the pain with the child. And so there's like a bypassing of the pain. So then a lot of times highly sensitive empathic kids are like turning to music and turning to art and thank God, right? Because that also gives us a creative outlet and you can pan back and look at like how we develop gifts from our burdens. But that is definitely kind of, I would say those three areas are really key when you're looking at emotional neglect. And some of them might have been very commonly experienced, especially in our modern day society where we don't have enough community and support to make sure that children are getting what they need from all angles. Well, I like that you um, mentioned that even though the parents could be loving and caring and mm -hmm. you know good hearted, they could just be working three jobs. So yes. that doesn't make the child who has a loving parent who they never get to see exempt from it. Yeah. And it's also like important to say that to people too, who come for therapy. It's like, because then they think that anything they admit that they didn't get in their childhood is a sign that their parent was a bad parent. And this is right. so nuanced and complex. Sometimes parents did have some toxic traits and they harmed you. And they also could have been great in some ways. Like we don't have to be black and white about this ever, you know? We can learn to take what we like and leave the rest, be grateful for what we were given and grieve what we were not given and learn how to give that to ourselves. Mm. Right, right. Um, okay, so the second part of that question, how does being sensitive in a dysfunctional family equate to chronic neglect? And I think you touched mm. on that just a bit. Yeah, it, it's the sense of like, having never been emotionally mirrored adequately, think about how many years you're under your parents' roof, 18. Mm -hmm. so that's a lot of time believing you don't matter what can that do to um because because as i've been researching I've, I've learned that people who experience uh trauma whether it's emotional trauma emotional abuse or mm -hmm. you know nar dealing with narcissistic caregivers their brain spotting is similar to people who have been in war Ooh, I Which didn't know that research. Damn. Um, blew, kind of blew my mind away. So to, to see some of the things that you've mentioned, what neglect can do, it kind of makes it real for those of us who just thought, oh, well, you know, my parents were busy. It, it just because they were busy or they had to work a lot or because life is hard doesn't mean that you don't deserve to acknowledge what you've been through. Right. Both and both and you can love your parent and acknowledge what you didn't get. And, and yeah, complex PTSD is, um, 
it's not formally in the DSM, the diagnostic statistic. Oh God, I don't even know how to say that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a therapist, but I'm like, I don't know. The DSM is actually like the, the book that we use to diagnose people. Um, and it's not in there yet because it's not really recognized as a thing yet fully, but it's the idea of like, if you have these complex attachment wounds throughout your childhood, um, suppose you were abused by one parent, neglected by another. And then you might add some sort of other relational abuse, like maybe you were sexually abused and perhaps one of your siblings was addicted to something. And then you also like were at the effect of their manipulation or abuse. Like it's about relational abuse, not just like I got into a car accident or which is all traumatic. That's PTSD too. It's a different type of PTSD. It's acute versus chronic, which is like developmental over time. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that, yeah, our brains definitely change accordingly. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So I wanted to ask some questions kind of more about the type of modalities that you practice. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this one is super interesting and I had never even really heard about it. What is music therapy? So it's the use of music for social, emotional, psychological, and physical needs in a healthcare setting or in private practice. And so um, when I studied music therapy, there's a lot of different uses for it. I actually originally was working in a nursing home with uh, clients with dementia, so it can be used for memory care to help because music's related to the emotional memory centers of the brain. Can I jump in really quick? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I remember watching a documentary um, and it was, I think it was a, um, a therapist and she was going to like nursing homes mm -hmm. and there were people who were, you know, written off, uh, so to speak. And she would just put headphones on them and put on music from their generation. And you would see them light up. Oh my goodness. It was like, they came back from the dead. So I guess that is a type of, of music therapy, huh? That's what I did. I sang a lot of Frank Sinatra for a year. A lot of Frank Sinatra. And um, it was beautiful. It's a lot of times the only bright spot in their day, you know, because they're a lot of times they can be isolated, you know, socially isolated. Like sometimes they make friends with one another, but a lot of times they're just waiting for their family to come visit. So when you can take them into, we also had wonderful dance therapy and drama therapy. There's so many different creative arts therapies. And that's something people should know about because if you have anyone who's suffering, um, the elderly, they really benefit from the creative arts because it taps into a different side of them that doesn't require the same level of cognitive functioning. Wow. That has to be so rewarding. It was beautiful. Absolutely. And a lot of times people use uh, music therapy, autism to help provide new pathways for connection and communication. And, um, and then I specialize in something called like vocal psychotherapy, which is using music, um, with vocalists and using singing and songwriting and toning and focusing on the somatic connection of the body as musical um, to help heal emotional and psychological issues. And so that's something pioneered by Diane Austin, who was one of my professors and uh, studied with her. And now I'm currently evolving my own method with um, my dear friend. We're creating a vocal teacher training where we're combining music therapy internal family systems and vocal teaching to help people develop like vocal technique that's more integrated and healing and therapeutic. Wow. Okay. So quick sidebar, how yeah. is the body um, involved somatically with music therapy? 
because I'm trying to understand how, I mean, I can understand how, like you explained, it doesn't require the same cognitive function mm-hmm. um, because, but I'm, I'm trying to also get a, an understanding of how the body is involved. 100%. So with singing, right, it's breath, which is like located in the belly. And then there's the emotions evoked, right, which open the heart. And then there's the use of the throat when you're singing, right? So it's like the, the larynx, the throat. So like you're, you're the, the air and the breath is actually traveling up your body through like the meridian of your body, right? Where all your chakras are located too. So there's like this whole idea, like you're, you're kind of opening yourself back up and you're creating a sense of freedom and liberation and emotional self-expression and creative altered states, right? Um, which doesn't require you... Um, memorizing anything really like you can just improvise vocally if you want to if it's a song you remember that's great if you don't remember it you can just say like ah or make up a song and or like move while you're singing you know and so the somatic piece is just inherent and a lot of times singers cry when they sing because it's using their own body as the instrument and uh and any other instrument actually requires like you know, hand-eye coordination or just like if you're playing piano or you're playing guitar, right? Like it requires the involvement of your body mm. and tapping into an inner rhythm and flow, which is very primal as well, which can be super soothing. That makes so much sense. And as you were explaining it, it was just like a light bulb went off and I got it. Yeah. Also, I, um, I heard that note you hit and I know you're trying to use this to get a record deal, but I can't promise that. <laughs> Not at all. No, that ship has sailed. No, but you, you do. I could tell by that note you hit. You have a beautiful voice. So thank you. Clearly, you, you do serve your clients well in everything that you do. So thank you. All right. So big question: What is IFS, and what does it stand for? First of all, okay, internal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you already know the answer to this, but I'm going to tell your audience if we are both clueless. Um, it's called Internal Family Systems, and it is a psychotherapy pioneered by Dr. Richard Schwartz, who's a fantastic human being, too. I've gotten to know him a little bit behind the scenes, um, attending like his own workshops and stuff. And what a vulnerable, accountable, depthful, insightful human being. Like and, you know, when we talk about people in positions of power, especially white men, right, who are like teaching and leading, like I just really, he has a lot of integrity and I've seen him really talk openly about his own process of, you know, humbling himself and being open to feedback to develop this model that really serves a lot of people. And what I like about this model is it's about um, orienting in the authentic self, which he defines by the eight C's, compassion, curiosity, clarity, connectedness, confidence, courage. I'm forgetting the ones I've said already, but the point is we innately have these beautiful qualities. And when we're stuck in our protector parts, we don't like feel connected to that mojo inside of ourselves, right? We're more in like, like perfectionism and people pleasing, right? Rigidity, a lot of intellectual parts, which by the way, serve us tremendously, and I'm a mercury ruled person, if you know astrology. So I'm very intellectual and there's a beauty in being intellectual. But if you're living in your head to sever and disconnect from your body, your emotions, your truth, you can't touch into your intuition, which is connected to those eight C's, right? So that's why also when you ungaslight people and they come back into their body and their emotional truths and they get in touch with their empath abilities, they, they're more connected to their emotions. So that's a little segue. But um, basically, 
you know, orienting in your higher self, it's very spiritual, but it's also very authentic. It's like, even if you don't believe in spirituality, it's just like the innate experience of being a human (laughs) that like when we're not blocking ourselves from love and connection and from truth, we inherently are those things. Right. And so what the work of IFS is, is to like work with the parts of us that were abused and traumatized or neglected and didn't feel safe being our authentic self recognize it as a burden or a wound or a trauma and a part of us that can heal. And the beautiful part is we realize that even those parts that we don't like, like the part that turned to substance abuse or the part that lies or the part that retreats from people, they all have a higher purpose. And once you heal the trauma that they're holding, they evolve and you start to recognize like, oh, this part of me that was addicted is actually really creative. Or this part of me that retreats is actually like really into solitude and meditation. And this part of me that is really like controlling is actually a great leader and mentor. And often it evolves into the healthier version of that quality. So that's why I really dig the model because the whole message is all parts are welcome. A lot of love, um, a lot of love and uh, authenticity is really like the true North and the compass of the work. Right. And anything that is not, that is coming up to be healed, but it's not demonized. It's not exiled. Cause the idea is like, if we have shame, we believe we're not good enough. So we're going to relegate that, that to the shadow. We're not going to look at it. We're going to be afraid that it means we're worthless because we grew up thinking we were worthless because of the abuse and trauma. So it's like a whole mind fuck actually to just be like, Oh, this part of me that I was afraid was like worthless is actually really valuable. But unless I have the courage to look at it, I'll never find out and I'll never know what I could become and what treasures are hidden inside of me. So to start reframing the shadow and our exiled parts is like, a treasure that we're going on a digging journey, cave digging to go find out like what riches are inside of me. And that's why I think this is just like a very poetic model. Well, we talked about it when I first reached out to you and, um, you know, I told you how much I love IFS because I had done talk therapy and it was good. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, anything that, that reconnects you with yourself is, is always going to be good, but it just, I felt I got to a point where I needed something more mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I felt like IFS was that more because of everything you, you just described, you know, and um, I do hope at some point to be able to meet Richard Schwartz um, just because of how grateful I am for the work that he did to, mm-hmm. to introduce this modality. But yeah. I wanted to ask a few more questions about IFS because yeah. If someone is listening and they, they hear your explanation, it, it, it makes sense, but like, it may be difficult to understand like what a part is and how mm-hmm. a part can be real outside of just saying like, you know, cause we all say it and we've been saying it for years without even really knowing it. You know, there's a part of me that just, you know, doesn't like that dude or, you know, there's a part of me that this or there's a part of me that that. So yep. how can a, how can a part be developed and exactly what is a part? Yeah. If you don't mind. No, I love this. So a part is like sub personalities. So the idea is that we all have multiple voices in our head and it doesn't mean we're schizophrenic. It just means like we all have different perspectives. So we have the part and often he talks about polarizations, parts that disagree. So it's like, this is the part of me that wants chocolate cake. There's another part of me that says I should be on a diet. 
This is the part of me that wants to go out and join my friends tonight at the party. This is the part of me that wants to stay home, right? So we have these parts that have different opinions and they're often fighting with each other. So when you want to say like, I'm just one person, it's like, well, think about what's going on in your head. Are you fighting in your head? That's a dialogue. That means two parts or three parts, right? So that's all that that means. And they hold different perspectives and they develop a lot of times as parts of your personality develop in your childhood home. So like, if your parent was always working and you need to fill in the gaps, you might have a part that's like, I'm going to cook and clean and prepare everything. I'm going to do event planning. And it can kind of be this manic hyper part that like really wants to <laughs> control the universe. And that's totally beautiful because that part also is like a great leader and event planner and um, like host and stuff like that. So there's like a gift in that, but there might also be a traumatized part of that that feels like they have to overcompensate for like whatever they didn't get. So what we do in IFS is we look at the positive intention of the part, we ask them, when did you develop? What's your history? Like, what age are you? What are you afraid of or concerned about if you didn't keep doing this? And you find out the part, the part's burdens. You go on a guided visualization journey to go back in time to heal um, the memories around whenever that part decided to kind of take on more responsibility in a way that felt unhealthy or developmentally inappropriate for them. And then once they realize that they're safe now, they're an adult and they're not trying to raise themselves, they can release whatever was the most toxic, exaggerated part of that functioning for them. And then they can be like a healthier version of that. So they'll still be operating in your head, but your thought patterns might be healthier. Your behaviors might kind of regulate and balance a little bit. And then as you're also doing the inner parenting work from self, the idea is to get into your eight C's self before you even do any of this. Um, your parts begin to trust you more and you realize, Oh, we're not kids anymore. Like there's an adult in the house and that's called self-leadership. So the more the parts trust self, the more there's balance because they're willing to trust you as the one who steers the ship and helps the parts collaborate. So there's less of like this over-functioning over-reliance on certain parts to save the day and more of a relaxing back of the parts into the inner constellation of who you are as a human being. Okay, so that was a great explanation. Um, you mentioned something while you were explaining uh, self. What is mm -hmm. self? Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so the, the eight C's we were talking about earlier, the, the, the higher self, um, it's, it's who we are as like a spiritual essence, right? It's sort of like the aspect of our soul that can filter down into our human body and um, be a loving, compassionate witness to all that there is. And so a lot of times we get into self when we meditate. Have you ever had that experience of calm, curiosity, and clarity? Or like creative flow, like perhaps you're singing, dancing, or writing, and you lose yourself, and you feel at peace and connected to all that there is. Um, thinking about the experiences in your life that have been the most heart-opening. So maybe it's the birth of your child or the first time you fell in love, but not from this attached place, but from this, like, I just want to give you my heart because you're amazing place. Like finding those qualities in yourself reminds you, Hey, I do know what that feels like. That is inside of me. And so it's reorienting back to that space. Every time you do therapy, which is super cool because the more intimate and familiar you are with that part of yourself, well, we don't call it a part. We call it your essence, but the idea is like the more you anchor back to it, the more you're aware when a part jumps in and obscures it. And one of the best IFS meditations is one on like feeling if you have any blocks or protectors around your heart, like how does your heart feel? Is it, is it stuck? Is it stony? Does it feel constricted? Does it feel numb? And then you find out who's blocking it 
And then you can do healing to kind of reopen that fourth chakra, right? So I think I think self is very connected to love, but it's also connected to milder forms of love, like that are just a little bit detached from the emotional intensity of a of a story or a trauma reaction. So it could just be like curiosity, just a little bit of openness, so you don't feel like um, this urgency to only respond in one way, which is usually a trauma response. Mm, wow, I remember when. I had my, I'll call it my IFS breakthrough. I think it was my third session. Mm -hmm. um, and I was ready. I was really ready. Um, but I realized I had two parts that were kind of in control. One was a people pleaser part and the other was an exhausted part. And they were so intertwined because the people pleaser had valid concerns um, mm -hmm. because it was trying to make me be seen and be heard and be loved, you know? So mm -hmm. by doing things to please people, I was in effect somehow going to get all the things that I needed. Right. Mm -hmm. The exhausted part knew that that wasn't a thing. And when I had done the work to heal both of those parts, I realized that the people pleaser part had, had never been seen or never been heard. So as soon as I allowed him to have a voice instead of suppressing it, it was almost like just complete relief. And then letting the people pleaser be heard, the exhausted part was heard as well, because all he had been trying to say the entire time was, you don't need to do this. And then as soon as it, it was like water on a fire and it just quenched it. And there was so much like just inner peace and relief. And it felt like both parts could retire. Not that they're never going to be there, but they didn't have to be on high alert as much. That makes so much sense. And that's so common in our inner parts world, right? Like we have the part that's like, I've got to be on, which is sympathetic nervous system response, anxiety, hypervigilance. It can feel more edgy or manic. And then we have the parts that go into like dorsal collapse and they shut down the nervous system when it's like a way of the body trying to balance it out. So there's, it's not atypical to have clients who have the, these really like intense parts that want to do, do, do. And then the parts that take them out and they're like, I'm just going to binge eat. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to nap for 10 days. And it's, it's a traumatized way of trying to regulate the nervous system. And once you bring in self, you learn how to regulate from a place of uh, ventral, which is like your... The, the inner balance between sympathetic and uh, the more calmer parts of yourself so that you don't feel like you have to be either really on or really off. Wow. That's deep. It really is. And it's why I love IFS the most, because I feel like um, this modality allowed me to access my body and, and learning how to regulate my nervous system. Mm -hmm. And um, that for me was huge because I didn't even know that it was possible to regulate my nervous system. I just thought this is the way that I am, you know? And then once I learned about the, and I remember I was just, I was sitting one day, I forget where I was. And, um, I knew what IFS meant. And I was just like, internal family system. Like I got it. Like all the parts are the family and they're the system that works together. And I was just like, Oh my goodness. I love this so much. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It is. It is. Okay, um, I want to quote something that you said, right? Okay. You said, this is actually the beauty of therapy. We all are a little weird, 
we are, we have all been hurt in secret ways. We don't see ourselves clearly and we're scared. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest mistake we make is that we don't think we're beautiful and wonderful. It's the biggest mistake. It's like the human, it's the great cultural mythology lie. It's the matrix. It's the matrix. Right. And so we were raised perhaps in ways where parts of us were invalidated and we didn't even know. So that's the secret, right? We're just like, Oh, there's just something wrong with me. And we don't even know that we got the message from the outside, from society, culture, perhaps our teachers. I had some stuff happen to me in the educational system that was like bullying from teachers. Like it can come from anywhere, but we get the message at some point, there's something wrong with me. And so we've been hurt in a secret way and that we don't realize that that is the mistake to think there's something wrong with you. And we don't trace it back to, oh, there was a message, an experience that I had had that invalidated my worth. And that was the mistake. It wasn't me. I'm not the mistake, right? Um, and uh, we're all a little weird because the way we've coped with being hurt is to develop those protection mechanisms that can feel a little intense or a little sideways to people, right? Like <laughs> when they come in and take control, right? Like, you know, like, why is this person like dominating the conversation all of a sudden? It's because they didn't feel valuable or visible as a child. So sometimes they go into like, I got to be the center of attention. And you're like, well, that might be a little weird for you. But when you actually investigate the part, you understand why, right? So we all actually make sense is the, is the beauty of the IFS model. Everything makes sense. Um, trying to think if there's any other piece of that quote that I missed. <laughs> um, let's see. We've all been hurt in a secret way. We don't see ourselves clearly and we're all scared. Maybe we're all fear. scared. We're all scared. We're not good enough. We're all scared that someone's going to leave or not love us anymore. It's just human survival, belonging, security. It's human. It's human. And mm -hmm. so it's like also normalizing that it's okay to be scared and having imposter syndrome doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, you know? And we don't see ourselves clearly because we don't see that we are magical and wonderful. So if anything, therapy is a reparative experience of accurate, healthy mirroring that we could have gotten in our childhood to reflect back. You are beautiful. You are worthy. You are special. You are loved. There is nothing wrong with you. There are things you do that might be unhelpful or unhealthy, but fundamentally there's nothing wrong with you. And that's the medicine we all need to heal. Wow. That was beautiful. I, I heard um, something that, also blew the top off for me from an interview I did with Jasmine Price. And then she said that love is your birthright. Aww. And so simple, right? But at the same time, never even considered it. And maybe that's just because of like the matrix, like you described, because of someone telling us that there's something wrong with us or just believing that there's something wrong with us. So we get to a point where we don't believe we're worthy. Yeah. And that kind of just like cut through all of it and got back to the starting point. So if that, if that is the case, if it's my birthright, then anything that came after that, that made me not feel that way is nonsense. You said it. You said it. That's it. <laughs> you mentioned something that I wanted to double back to. Yeah. What is imposter syndrome? It's like, even if I have all the knowledge about something or I've trained for years or studied for years or whatever, I ain't. <laughs> it's the fear that one isn't good enough. And I think, I honestly think a lot of this comes from emotional neglect and abuse. 
Um, but it also, I think is a part of the human condition, but I think there's just something to be said for like, if I was never good enough and you might've thought it was like about academics, like perhaps in your childhood home, it was like, you didn't get an A. Why did you get a B? What's wrong with you? A, you know, but it, it could also have been like, I never, mom's never happy. Uh, you know, I, she always seems a little depressed and like, I, why can't I make her happy? Like everything I do, she never smiles. Like I'm not good enough. So like children might overly assign responsibility because in the absence of being told we're not responsible, the child's developing brain is a little more egocentric, is self-reflecting and kind of self-referential. Like, oh, if X, Y, Z is happening in the environment and no one's taking accountability for it, I might be the bad one. And that's what's so damaging, right? But it's like just biology as well. So um, believing you've never been able to be good enough or not having achieved a certain level of approval or like even with narcissistic parents, it's like the approval is temporary. So it's like they love you when you're on their good side, when you're approving of them, when you're flattering their ego, when you do what they say. But when you challenge them, you might become the bad kid, right? So if you have any sort of narcissistic wounding around like, love, worth, and belonging in your family of origin, it might just naturally transfer to like the way you feel about your professional accomplishments. Like, oh, I can't sustain this or, oh, people love me, but they don't know the real me. I'm not, I must not really be that amazing. And this is all going to fall apart someday. So there's like an existential dread and fear about one's own uh, value and placement in the world. Wow. That was another great explanation. Thank you. You're killing it. Okay, so last question. Yeah. If you could use your platform to encourage anyone who might be struggling with the idea of therapy or feeling comfortable with talking to someone about their big feelings or emotions, what would you say? I would say there's wisdom in that. If if you especially got the message growing up that opening up was not safe, one of your beautiful protectors, one of your parts is telling you, hey, be careful who you tell the truth of your heart to. And I've worked with people who've been harmed by providers, who've been abused even by therapists. And it's okay to know that you want to really be cautious about who you choose to be in a healing relationship with. And you can take your time picking a good therapist. I highly recommend interviewing as many as you need till you have a felt sense of safety with someone. And it might even take time to notice, notice that. And that's okay. You don't have to stick with anyone you choose. And it's okay to take time to trust somebody. And what I do want to say, though, is when you are in a pretty safe, I mean, no therapist is perfect, but safety is defined by that when there's a rupture, there's a repair. So in a narcissistic home, like if harm's done, like suppose like a therapist forgets to send you something or shows up late to an appointment or does something like that makes you feel discounted or hurt in some way. If they're unable to apologize and then amend the behavior then you might feel continue to feel unsafe with them. Similar in a narcissistic home, a parent doesn't take accountability, like, and they start arguing with you, like, no, you're the problem, right? You're not going to feel safe with that provider, and rightfully so. But the healthy, well-trained therapist will self-reflect, think about what's my impact on this client, what do I need to own up to, what should I change in my own behavior, and provide safety for the client to feel like they can actually communicate, hey, I don't like that, I don't feel safe, I don't agree. Because that's how you heal from narcissistic abuse is feeling like you can have an authentic relationship with your therapist as an equal who's not trying to dominate or control or invalidate you. So it just, it makes so much sense if you were raised that way that you're going to be hesitant to open up in therapy. So honor that inner wisdom and 
you also deserve support at the same time. You deserve to feel safe. You deserve to be loved for who you are. So when you find a good provider, and I encourage you to look for one, you're going to begin to heal from this fear. And you're going to realize that there's really nothing to be afraid of ultimately in who you are. I think a lot of us have shame around things we've done when we were younger, when we didn't have healthier coping skills. So that sometimes looks like addictive behavior or cruel behavior, um, just things we did when we were kind of dissociated, not in our body, not in our right mind, because we were kind of running away from our childhood pain. So like a lot of times there's fear talking about like, oh, this one time I did something harmful to someone or this one time I behaved in this way that was really, I felt was immoral. Like just owning owning those parts of yourself as like the best you could have done at that time, right? Like you did the best you could to feel safe, to bring that information forward gradually over time when you feel safe with your therapist, to have it held in love. And so you could forgive yourself because you deserve to forgive yourself and to know that you're ultimately an amazing person, no matter what you have done or no matter what anyone has ever done to you. That's not who you are. That's just what happened. Wow. <laughs> that was also spot on and so healing and, and mm -hmm. just a, a wonderful explanation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to say thank you so, so much for, um, your time and for doing this with me and just for your knowledge and, and what you offer to the world, the gifts that you offer. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real honor to share my body of work and also just like to, to get to reach people that might've not known enough about this for them to feel the safety to go get support. And everyone deserves support. And so I'm just really grateful for your platform that you're providing this educational podcast for people who might have been hesitant to like go looking for therapy or to learn about themselves, but they get to kind of just test it out and see how they feel and if it resonates. Because I think that like, this is a really important bridge back to healing for people. Well, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. If someone wanted to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? Well, I'm on social media, IFS underscore witch, W-I-T-C-H. And then my website is ifswitchtherapy.com. And when I say witch, it just basically means I'm very spiritual. I'm a trained, uh, you know, I'm training in psychic work and astrology and energy healing. And I'm very uh, eclectic. So for people who are in those healing arts as well, there's that space for them to explore and, and uh, feel safe being their true self with me. So, yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for this, for who you are, what you do, the way you do it, and for the time that you've given me. Thanks so much. Such an honor.